This series comes with a content note for anyone who has been through abuse or knows someone who has. Statistically, that is a lot of us. Some of what you'll hear in this podcast is distressing. Although we know it's important to hear directly from victim survivors about what they've been through, this content may be confronting and won't be suitable for everyone. Please check the show notes for phone numbers you can contact to receive confidential support. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, supporting long-term financial independence for victim survivors through ComBank Next Chapter. We acknowledge that we produce this series on what always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. I started to run out of money and became homeless and was sleeping in my car, often feeling safer in my car because I knew he wouldn't know where I was. Domestic violence cases have surged in Sydney. A husband accused of stabbing his wife. In a shocking domestic violence attack. Domestic violence is a national crisis. We've had an absolute tragedy occur here tonight. My name's Tharang Chavla. I'm a writer, lawyer and anti-violence advocate. I'm also the host of There's No Place Like Home, a podcast about family violence that puts the voices of survivors at the centre of the story. Today, you're going to meet May, but that's not her real name. She's a mum of two, and we've changed her name for privacy reasons. As a First Nations woman, justice for Aboriginal people is close to her heart. May is currently working on the treaty process in Victoria. I've been working with the Elders' Voice and my grandfather's Aboriginal, so there's personal connection. And it's about social justice and wanting something better for a group of people that have suffered so much and the Elders seeking out all their wisdom. But there's, it's through their stories, you know, there's so much pain. But the resilience and the strength is what attracts me. May is a highly educated, confident and accomplished woman. She's anything but the stereotype of a person who might find themselves homeless after fleeing a violent relationship. And that's just the problem. Stereotypes are not only harmful, but they're often redundant when it comes to both family violence and homelessness. It isn't a one-size-fits-all problem, and that's a challenge for policymakers and support services alike. Domestic violence transcends age, race, education and socioeconomic status. What I'm trying to get people to understand is when they see a homeless person on the street or in a shelter or in an informal settlement, what, what they're seeing actually is the failure to implement the right to adequate housing by all levels of government. Rather than look at the individual and say, oh, that person landed there because of some personal characteristic or trait, what's really at play there is the failure of governments to actually implement their human rights obligations. So a homeless person has nowhere to live and therefore nowhere to sleep, but perhaps rough on the streets, and that is becoming a criminalized act. A homeless person has nowhere to eat, and so they eat on the street, and that's becoming a criminalized act. And that criminalization is a form of discrimination against people who are homeless. It is such a quick thing that happens. It's like one day you're fine, and then literally overnight you're not. And it could be anybody. Doesn't matter what demographic you come from, what experience you have, what knowledge of these systems, whatever, what income bracket, it can just be gone overnight for women particularly. The link between violence and homelessness is strong. 
The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare says 42% of the specialist homelessness service clients have experienced family violence. Family violence is the main reason women seek the support of homeless shelters. In Victoria, where May lives, there are nearly 50,000 people on public housing waiting lists. While there are more homeless men than women, among the fastest growing cohorts of homeless Australians are women aged over 55. The number of older homeless women nationwide increased by more than 30% between 2011 and 2016. And this was before anyone had even heard of COVID-19. And I mean, the most terrifying part of that for me is women leaving violent relationships. To have the courage to do that, to face homelessness and no superannuation, like, why would you leave? Like, I really understand why women stay. To understand how May ended up homeless and fending for herself as a new mum, we need to go back to the beginning of her relationship with her abuser. She met him when she was living and working in Morocco. So we met, he was a friend of a friend in Morocco and I met him in Morocco and he was showing me around, that kind of thing. You know, when you're in a developing country coming from the West, you get quite dependent on the people that you connect with there because it's so foreign and it's so unfamiliar and particularly being a female there, it was so unsafe. Let's call May's partner, Ethan. May and Ethan moved into his sister's apartment in Morocco while she was away in France. That apartment was May's home in name only. It was somewhere that she never felt safe or secure. He made me so terrified to go outside. Like, he would tell me things like, if you go outside, you're going to get raped. Even if you just walk down the street to get bread and milk, you're not going to make it. Like, you will get you get attacked and raped just doing that in the middle of the day. So, you, you know, he really manipulated into me staying in this apartment and I felt very, very unsafe. And then there was times when he would padlock me in there as well. So he he would lock the door and padlock it and say it was for my safety. And I can remember just feeling so incredibly trapped. I felt like I was going crazy. May was physically and emotionally trapped by Ethan. She was on the other side of the world, away from her family her friends and her support networks. So she was especially isolated and feeling vulnerable. May was only able to escape with the help of some kind strangers. There were some German tourists walking by and I threw rocks at them <laughs> to get their attention from the window. And I was like, you gotta help me, you gotta help me get out of here. And they did. And we packed everything up, got me out, went and stayed with them and he found where we were. And I, I don't know how, like Morocco's odd like that. People know people and they're all sort of watching. He found where we were, came in the middle of the night, was this huge drama, dragged me out. May went back to Ethan because she didn't have any other choice. Women who experience violence from their partners often attempt to leave unsuccessfully. Sometimes they'll try on multiple occasions. I'm going to bring in Nicole Yade now to help us understand why. Nicole is the Director of Client Operations at the Women and Girls Emergency Centre, which supports women and children impacted by homelessness, domestic violence and systemic disadvantage and advocates for societal change. We do talk a little bit about little leaving and big leaving. And we know that it takes the average woman leaving several times before they make that big leaving step and don't 
go back. I know myself as a victim survivor, you know, it was many, many times I left before I left for the final time. And even when I left for the final time, that makes it sound way too neat and tidy. I wish I could say it was this moment of heroism where I stood up and said, absolutely no more, I accept this, I'm going. But it certainly wasn't for me. You know, it's embarrassing for me to talk about it and it was many years ago for me. Even after 20 years working in the sector, Nicole finds it devastating when she meets women who are trying to end volatile, potentially dangerous relationships. It's still heartbreaking to me when I meet women who are trying to end really difficult and sometimes violent relationships, but they're the ones who have to leave their house. They're the ones who have to put their life into a suitcase, get what their children need into the back of a car We're thinking about taking our kids out of their rooms and taking them away from their preschool or their school. Even though there's some great emergency accommodation, you know, it fills up very, very quickly. And sometimes we're sending people to the other end of town to have somewhere safe to stay. It's not really always making it easy to go back to school or see your friends or, you know, see your local doctor or any of those kind of things. So it's really, really challenging to leave and it takes a lot of courage. All Australian workers are entitled to five days of domestic violence leave, but there's no requirement that it's paid leave. That means a whole bunch of survivors aren't financially set up to take advantage of that leave and many of them don't know if they're eligible. The consequences of abuse are complex and far-reaching, and it takes time and money to deal with them. Moving to find a safe new place for yourself and your family can cost as much as $20,000 and take more than 140 hours. That's why some organisations are campaigning that domestic violence leave needs to be paid leave. To escape a violent relationship, you have to take time off from work. Without paid leave, women simply don't have time or resources to find a new safe place to live. We see how hard this is, and we understand how much it costs. Women have told us what they need, and we have heard them. To leave, you need leave. The Fair Work Commission is currently examining whether paid domestic violence leave should be something that every employer is required to offer. Increasingly, companies are recognising the importance of extending paid leave to their employees. More and more are voluntarily responding to the call for employees who experience domestic violence to be paid leave. They include Qantas, Mervac, BHP, Rio Tinto and Combank, which provides unlimited paid domestic violence leave. Let's return to May, who now had yet another reason to escape Ethan's abuse. I got pregnant with my daughter, so that's my daughter now. And then again, he used manipulation to trap me and said, you know, you can't fly, you'll kill the baby, blah, blah, blah. Like, you can't get on a plane anyway, no one's going to give you a ticket, you've got no money. Like, he just completely isolated me. But I eventually, just on the sly, got out and left. And I think I, had a whole, I think I got out on a whole bunch of frequent flyer points or something. May finally made it home to Melbourne 
and started getting ready to become a mum. At this point, I was about three and a half months pregnant. I came home, went to my family's home. So I picked up a contract job for three months and I didn't tell them I was pregnant because I didn't want to be discriminated against. Had this three-month contract, earned some money, had enough money, and then I just saved because I was like, well, I need somewhere to live. And so I moved into my own place in Melbourne, closer to where all my friends were, and I just worked and worked and worked and worked and saved and saved and saved. Then something unexpected happened. The time just before my daughter was born, he turned up at my door, which was really awful and shocking. And he wouldn't leave my house. I had friends coming trying to get rid of him and it was just a nightmare. Ethan kept putting her life in danger. This is a common tactic of abusers to escalate violent behaviour when a partner is pregnant. And then in the middle of labour, he had an outburst of his anger and I was literally in the middle of labour and there was no one else there and he left and I remember thinking oh this is it I'm just going to give birth like a dog on the ground in my kitchen and like I'd planned a home birth but not like that not like that not feeling that scared. To this day May doesn't know exactly how Ethan managed to find her home address from another continent. Karen Bentley is the CEO at WESNET, Australia's peak body for specialist women's domestic and family violence services. Ten years ago, our member services started coming to us and talking and saying that they were noticing that more and more of the victims and survivors of domestic violence were starting to be tracked or followed to their services. So that, you know, abusers or perpetrators were actually increasingly turning up outside refuges. We've always known that the most dangerous time for a woman is when she's planning to leave a relationship or shortly after she has left a relationship. What we've seen with technology is, and one recent survey found that they interviewed 15 survivors and 100% of them found that the technology-facilitated abuse increased or started at the end of the relationship. So when a controlling, abusive person loses control of their victim and they can't keep physical control of them anymore by, you know, being in the same location with them, then sometimes they will turn to technology as a way to, you know, stalk or harass or monitor. Technology-facilitated abuse means using social media, mobile phones or tracking devices to harass, intimidate or harm someone. It might sound like the stuff of television police dramas, but it's so common because it's inexpensive and dangerously easy to do. That can be particularly dangerous for people who are trying to put some distance between themselves and their abusive partner. You know, 20 years ago, you used to be able to move interstate and pretty much disappear. But with technology and we've all got, you know, phones and email accounts and Facebook accounts that we keep in touch with our loved ones and, you know, to be employed, especially during times like COVID lockdowns. And increasingly, you know, they can be used or misused really as tools to try and track people. Technology facilitated abuse can include hacking into a victim survivor's email and social media accounts monitoring or restricting their internet use, using GPS devices or phones to track their movements, recording private phone conversations, taking intimate photos without permission, posting abusive messages or images on social media, or even enabling access to an otherwise secure building. As you can imagine, this kind of abuse 
makes survivors feel like their abuser is everywhere and that they'll never be safe. I think the most important thing for women who are experiencing technology abuse is that, you know, a lot of the advice that people get or give is to get off the technology and that's a really difficult thing to do. So, you know, getting off the technology is not really practicable in today's society. Like you actually need to be connected so that you can, you know, stay connected to your family and support and also reach out to services. So it's really important to stay connected. And I also think that if you're advising friends or family on police who advise people, women to get off technology, it's the same as don't go out after dark, don't wear, you know, mini skirts because you have to protect yourself from the abuser. We actually need some messages which start to sort of recognise that it's the abuser's behaviour that's the problem. Another form of technological harassment that has become more prolific in recent years is abuse in transaction descriptions. Here's Combank's Group Executive Human Resources, Sean Lewis, explaining how they initially uncovered this problem. It was a, a member of our team that, while dealing with a victim of domestic violence, discovered that their abusive partner was using pay ID to send abusive messages with transactions of one cent. So constantly bombarding the victim with abusive messaging via our payment platforms. We then thought, well, we need to find out the size of this issue. And horrifically, in a three-month period, we discovered 100,000 messages that could be classed as abusive. 100,000 is a lot to actually try and conquer and, and address. And so we actually used our artificial intelligence capability to apply machine learning to that 100,000. And we identified 200 unique individuals who were consistently sending abusive messages to their victims. So how can banks stop this kind of harassment? We put stops on people sending those. We can remove a victim's pay ID, etc., so that people can't use their ABN or pay ID to send these horrific messages. We can set up safe accounts for victims. And we also have a process now where we can actually cease banking perpetrators who won't desist as a result of warning letters. While this work to stop technological stalking and abuse is positive and necessary, for May, the damage was already done. I started to run out of money and became homeless and was sleeping in my car, often feeling safer in my car because I knew he wouldn't know where I was. By this stage, May wasn't alone in her car. She had a baby girl who was only a few months old, a baby that she was responsible for, and a baby that while she loved with all of her heart, made the labour involved in setting up a new home and a new life nearly impossible, especially while May had limited access to resources. As a result, because of the stress, I wasn't able to produce any milk for her and I had no idea because I was so in survival mode and stressed stressed out to my eyeballs that I had no idea there was no milk. And she just got increasingly skinny and started to look like a very unwell baby. So I took her to the children's and the paediatrician's like, yeah, she's really underweight. You have to start feeding her bottles and doing all these other things around expressing. And like every mother who's had to deal with breastfeeding things will know how difficult this is. Like it's every three hours you set an alarm, you've got to express and then you've got to feed. And then I was trying to breastfeed through a little line and trying to storm at the breast milk when I had no refrigeration. And I don't know how I did it. I really don't know how I did it. Family violence is the leading cause of homelessness 
amongst Australian kids. It has serious consequences for children's development and well-being far beyond the period of homelessness. Research shows that babies and toddlers raised in homeless environments could have delays in mental and physical development. Older children experience high levels of anxiety, loss and grief, presenting with high rates of mental health problems. Experiencing homelessness as a kid is a contributing factor to that person becoming homeless as a teenager or in adulthood. Helen Sylvia is the Chief Executive Officer of the Women and Girls Emergency Centre, WAJEC for short. The need to advocate for and look after children living with family violence, as well as adults, is something that she knows well. In the sector, we often talk about that kids are the silent victims in DV. It's really important that we work with mums, we work with the victim survivors of domestic violence and that we attend to those whole of family needs. But equally, we need to ensure that we're providing targeted services and programs and we're resourcing the needs of kids who have witnessed violence or who have experienced violence in the home. Because we know that domestic and family violence is one of the key ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And we know that the more adverse childhood experiences that a child has, the lifelong trajectory that they'll have into adulthood will be fraught with often complex health and other kinds of issues whether that's about their physical and mental health, incarceration, homelessness, poverty and a range of other things. So when we look at kids now, we need to be providing targeted intervention and support for our kids now, for them in the here and now, because they suffer equally when they've been subject to domestic and family violence. But we also need to be putting in those interventions as a early intervention, because if we don't, we know that those long-term life cycle trajectory will be costly. So much of who we are as people comes from feeling like we belong. Anyone who's had that taken away from them knows how painful it is at any age. But when a child is made to feel rudderless, to feel disconnected, it can affect the course of their whole life and even the person that they become. International studies show that continuity of schooling in particular is a predictor of well-being later in life. Missing school can have a major ripple effect on the person that you become. Let's return to May, who, as you remember, was sleeping in her car with her newborn daughter and struggling to breastfeed. She was desperately trying to get help through a range of services, both government and not-for-profit, that could hopefully help her get back on her feet and keep her and her daughter safe. I had the privilege of that behaviour in me plus all the resource knowledge that I knew and even still, I still was hitting walls everywhere. There was no homelessness service was going to help me because I didn't have an address. So like, oh, you don't have an address so we can't put you on the system. Like, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. I'm homeless. There were so many systems that failed me during that time. Like, even using mental health services, they wanted an address. Without an address, you can't get the Medicare rebate, you know, and you can't see somebody. It was just a nightmare. And I started to really understand how people end up, you know, rough sleeping for so long. And I was with this tiny little baby who was so vulnerable and I was hyper, hyper vigilant because I was so scared all the time about what would happen. Between 2019 and 2020, almost 120,000 people 
seeking help from specialist homelessness services, were experiencing family and domestic violence. Alarmingly, in the past year, only 3% of those who approached a homelessness service who'd experienced domestic and family violence and needed long-term housing actually received support. Here's Nicole Yade again. Before she was with Wayjack, Nicole was with Lou's Place, which is Sydney's only daytime refuge. Lou's Place is a low-barrier service that works with women and girls as long as they need. And we find that that's really, really important because many of the women that we work with fall through the gaps of the existing service system or may have received, you know, some intensive case management support for a period, but they're still needing a bit more support and a bit more care. It's not all kind of neatly wrapped up and finished just yet. Hardeep Saini has spent most of his working life in the homelessness space. Recently, he worked with Launch Housing, who provide short-term rental assistance to homeless Australians. Look, people who are first-time homeless, they are the one who are in most shock because, unfortunately, people may have had a different expectation from the service sector. They might actually get a house or a safe place to go, but that's not the reality. Unfortunately, that's why uh, first-time presenters, they sometimes tend to walk away. They tend to try to explore the options within their own support circle that would be family or friends. Hadeep says that some families will come in seeking assistance. And part of the challenge that staff face every day is to find a way to speak to women alone. Once a victim is out of earshot from their family, they're more likely to disclose that, yes, their whole family is homeless, but that they are being subjected to violence. People who we see repeatedly in the cycle of family violence and the cycle of homelessness, they are more tend to be more realistic that a motel actually is a viable option at this given point. And the other family violence specialist services, they have came a long way, but if you spoke with any one of them, their number one limitation would be that they don't have suitable accommodation. So that they have to work with the Uh, the survivors and the presenters um, who are seeking these services and they have to sort of unfortunately convince them that unfortunately this is what we can offer. Having a safe home is a human right. It's also a real foundation of the social order our society is built on. The home is where we entertain our friends, where we spend time with our families and where we go to relax. But you also need a home address to apply for a car loan or to pay your phone bill, or to enrol your children in school, or even register for a Medicare card. And this was exactly the predicament that May faced. This was that point when I was going to service after service after service and being turned away, going, we can't help you, you don't have an address. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, that's insane. And I was desperate. And I had the whole list, you know, I had the handout with the list of services. I was ringing and ringing and ringing and going from one to the other to the other. May was finally able to get some support from Launch Housing, where Hadeep Saini works. And then I finally got onto somebody at Launch who who said, hey, we've got this program running at the moment and this package of funding that can get you, you know, your first month's rent and bond, regardless of whether you have an address now or not, and we'll help you. And they did. So they they organised removalists, the first month's rent and bond, and without that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to do it. 
because I had no resources and my family had no resources, so there was nobody to back me up. The housing and homelessness sector is in crisis and has been for some time. Successive Australian governments have failed to invest in affordable housing and social housing at the same time as house and rent prices have skyrocketed. Owning a home is a dream that's now out of reach for many Australians. The most recent census data estimated that there were 116,000 homeless people in Australia on any given night. Of those, less than 20% were living in supported accommodation. What I discovered that uh, people who, women especially, who were looking support because they had to flee or they are thinking about fleeing because of family violence or at risk of family violence, they would come to the entry point and someone like me who will try to, you know, give them a 10 minutes educational tour around what is available in homelessness and what is the limitation of homelessness sector. And often you won't have a house or a unit to offer to the families or to the women. You would offer them a motel, which is not a very good fix for someone who actually have to flee their family home. Yes. So the lack of affordable housing and housing outcomes spans across the housing spectrum. We know that there is not enough social housing. You know, there's in excess of 60,000 people in New South Wales on our social housing wait lists. Many women who are experiencing DV may not even qualify for priority housing on our social housing wait lists. And those wait times could be anywhere from two years to four years. And that's a good outcome. <laughs> we know within the affordable housing policy that we have within New South Wales, that typically relies on a woman having a sustainable income of about 60k a year so really looking at working mums which a lot of our women aren't able to sustain full-time or aren't able to sustain sort of low to moderate incomes particularly if they've got young kids so it precludes them from accessing affordable housing. Experts advise that Australia should focus on prevention and early intervention. They recommend a move away from crisis accommodation to a housing first response to help move people into appropriate long-term accommodation. Homelessness is a solvable problem. With the help of Launch and the mother and baby unit at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, May found a safe home. May was able to give her daughter somewhere to live and a life that finally felt safer. She even found love again. Yeah, and we met online and then it just all happened so fast, so fast. Like it was full gaslighting, you know, moved from his house where he lived with his wife for 15 years into my house and telling me it was just temporary while he was moving out. But he just didn't leave. He ended up staying. And then the kids moved in. And so it was just like this instant Brady Bunch family. It was so seductive in the sense of, you know, I yearned for family. I yearned to know what it was like because I'd always had just me and my daughter on my own. I had no idea what it was like to feel loved and supported and cared for as a family. I had no idea what that felt like. So... I just wanted it and I just said yes and lent into it. Devastatingly, that relationship also became violent. There was only a few incidences of physical violence with him before I left because I'd been through it and I'm like, there's no way I'm doing this again. There's no way. May tells us about one occasion 
on which her new partner became horribly violent in front of their children. Please be warned that this audio is distressing. He was screaming at me and I was screaming back, telling him to stop. Like I just wanted him to stop. I was just screaming and begging him to stop screaming at me, really. And then the kids were all watching and he jumped up and pinned me against the wall, punched a hole in the wall next to my head and held me by my throat. And all I can remember is thinking about the kids because they were all screaming, three little children under five, like absolutely terrorised, screaming like, Daddy, Daddy, stop, you know, because my daughter called him Daddy too. And I just remember thinking this is it. Like there's absolutely nothing I can do. There's no way I can fight this for all the, the warrior I think I am. I have no control right now. And I remember like him raising his fist and I just shut my eyes and was waiting for the, I was just waiting for the end. An Australian Institute of Health and Welfare report found that people living in remote and very remote areas are 24 times more likely to be hospitalised as a result of family violence. What do I do? And because I was in this little town where I didn't know anyone, there was no one to reach out to. And we were even physically quite isolated, like on a property with not really any neighbours. And it felt very, very scary. And so I called some friends and I was like, I've got to get out. And a friend came with a van and we grabbed as much as I could, got his children to their mum and I left and that was it. I never went back. I think I went back to get my stuff. This is why we so desperately need more safe housing options for women in regional and remote areas of Australia, as well as those in our cities. For women who have children with a violent partner, they're always going to be at risk of being discovered where they live because obviously they will have relatives and children and children's schooling. So often she is always on the run. She's looking behind. If we had more women being able to get directly into safe, their own independent accommodation, we could bypass a lot of crisis accommodation. Or if they were staying in crisis accommodation, the shorter periods of time and being able to gain access to their own housing, we're going to free up a lot of the sort of throughput issues and the demand issues that we're seeing at that front end. So I think any time I talk about demand for crisis accommodation in this country, I can't talk about that without talking about the bigger issue of access to safe and affordable housing, full stop, because without that, we're going to just continue to see women and kids placed further and further at vulnerable risk and, and safety issues. For May, the idea of having a safe home to come home to has become an obsession. For so long, she was running from something or someone, desperate to find somewhere that she could lay her head down at night where she belongs somewhere to plant her feet and build community. It's understandably taken a toll on her mental health and her long-term well-being. I, I constantly think about, it's like an obsession I have of looking for somewhere to go. Just feel like I can belong and feel safe and have a community because I don't have it anymore because I've had to leave so many times. I don't have those long relationships with friends. And a lot of my friends here in this community left. And, and then during lockdown, more of them left. So there's really no one. I sort of stay because my family are close by and I have a partner here now as well. It's really unsettled me. It's really hard to feel like I belong anywhere. And to do that for somebody else, my children, 
There's a lot of overthinking and stress and anxiety that goes into decision making because I just don't know and I don't trust my ability to make choices anymore because I made so many bad ones. And see, I still blame myself. You may have wondered, during the retelling of May's story, why the police weren't able to help her. While many family violence survivors receive appropriate support from police, May's experience was not at all positive. It left her deflated, disappointed and unsafe. That's why, next week on There's No Place Like Home, we'll hear about what happens when the police can't protect you and we'll introduce you to Nina. I remember that meeting and I just had to, you know, sit down in front of this man and he told me, don't worry, we're taking care of it, we're looking into it, we're investigating, you know, you just need to trust us. And I said, how can I trust you? And at that point, like, I really knew, I really understood the situation that, like, this man should have been arrested and none of these other things would have happened to me. See you then. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, who are committed to helping end financial abuse through ComBank Next Chapter. No matter who you bank with, if you are worried about your finances because of domestic and family violence, you can contact ComBank's Next Chapter team on 1800 222 387 within Australia or visit combank.com.au slash next chapter. If you need help or advice, please check the show notes for phone numbers for confidential support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. It will help these important stories to reach more people's ears. For more information about There's No Place Like Home or to join the movement, please head to futurewomen.com. This episode was produced by Jamila Rizvi, Sally Spicer, Tarang Chawla, Fleur Bitcon, Ella Jackson, Ruby Leigh Gatfield, India Bailey and Kate Lever. Editing by Bad Producer Productions. Artwork by Patty Andrews.